Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, new approaches to testing patients for cancer. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Grail. In this first podcast of our three-part series, Dr. Christopher Mason and Dr. Pashtun Kasi discussed new methods of detecting cancer, including liquid biopsy and blood-based multi-cancer early detection tests. Can one blood sample provide accurate screening for many cancers? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash cancer early detect one. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Mason is a professor of genomics, physiology, and biophysics in the Department of Physiology and Biophysics at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. Dr. Cassie is director of colon cancer research at Weill Cornell Medicine and director of liquid biopsy research at the Englander Institute of Precision Medicine, also at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Mason will begin our discussion. Well, hello and uh, welcome. It's really a pleasure to, I'm joined today by, with Dr. Pashtun Kashi, who's uh, one of the world's best uh, clinicians and cancer researchers uh, that I know, and many other people feel the same way. So I'm very happy and proud to have him as a colleague at Weill Cornell and at New York Presbyterian. So Dr. Kashi, thank you for joining me uh, for this podcast series. And today we're going to look at new ways for testing patients for cancer, something that's near and dear to our heart uh, to find cancer earlier and give us more options for treatment, of course. So we're today, uh, well, first, uh, Dr. Kashi, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Great. And so actually today we're going to have a discussion like we've had, I think, many times uh, about patients and about technologies where we today have this ability to test for multiple cancers using a, a simple blood test, something you can get uh, at, you know, at a clinic down the street. And I think, you know, basically for, for today, I want to go through a little bit of where we are with different kinds of testing. What is the frontier? What are some examples uh, from the clinic that you've seen and uh, that, that you, uh, I know you've just recently presented on this actually, I think this morning. So uh, it's, uh, uh, we could talk about, you know, wh where are we, where is it seeing it be applied? But then also, I think it'd be great to think about some of the technology uh, of how it could get, get better and improve even more. So uh, we'll start first with uh, what, what are some of the most recent tools you've been using? And I think we can also hit on some recent studies that have come out. But first, um, what, what have you been uh, seeing recently in the clinic that you've uh, liked using and where do you see the field today? No, it's, it's definitely an exciting area that uh, has sprung up so quickly in terms of uh, having an impact in different phases of a journey of a patient with cancer. You know, a lot of these quote-unquote liquid biopsies under the broad umbrella term, you know, they all started with testing patients for advanced or metastatic cancer when the cancer had already spread. But very quickly, it has kind of moved up the ladder. And now uh, here we are talking about tests that can screen for cancer for early detection. Uh, I think what I found very sobering, at least as these tests were coming up, is the fact that while there are you know 50 or more plus cancers, um, we only have screening ability for five or so. Uh, and we don't have anything from a screening standpoint mm -hmm. for any of the other uh, cancers. So anything that can fill the void in the space uh, will have an impact uh, or potentially can have a tremendous impact. I think that's only time will tell. But you know, we know for sure from an oncology standpoint and survival standpoint that no matter what type of cancer you're dealing with, there's a 
sharp decline in survival as soon as you go from early or advanced cancers to all the way from metastatic cancer. So those mm-hmm. early stages one, two, three have a very different five-year survival or outlook or prognosis than somebody who has stage four or metastatic cancer. And, and the hope and goal with these tests is that we could probably catch whatever cancer earlier. Yep. I think there, there's this exciting development where it's now uh, what are called multi-cancer early detection tests, where just with that one tube, you can, as you were just saying, not look at just one or two possible uh, cancers that would be detected, but you know, really uh, potentially you know, dozens of cancers are screened at the same time. And I think you know, what's really important also is that for some cancers that are extremely lethal, like pancreas or ovarian cancer, where you often can't see them until they are metastatic, uh, you know, th- this gives us a chance to try and pick them up earlier. And I think that's, you know, really promising for, for the field. I, actually, I confess, I recently got uh, an early a screening test just because I was curious and I was glad I was negative. But then I immediately thought, well, what's the false negative rate? What's, uh, what's the true positive rate? So I think we'll get into that a little bit today. But it is, uh, the, it's an exciting time where any, any physician can order it. Uh, usually it's for if there's an indication, but it, anyone who's even just curious can uh, have this be uh, eventually part of their healthcare. And this has led to some large studies in the UK and in the US. And I think um, those are some things we'll, we'll go into a little bit more shortly. But, uh, you know, one of the, uh, you know, I think the, the, to jump back to that question of false positives, false negatives, you know, we've seen for some of this, the trials that have come out, for example, like the Pathfinder study, you know, is looking at, you know, over 6,000 individuals that are over 50 and trying to figure out what's the cancer signal of origin, where you can look at the fragment of DNA and either by the methylation signature or by how it maps back to the reference genome, you can infer where it's likely come from. And so for those listening, the the way you can is because, of course, there's the same genome in every cell in your body because you start as a single-celled embryo, but of course it manifests different as muscle cells, as you think about pancreatic cells, uh, you think about any cell in your body, the the DNA is the same, but the epigenetic signature or how DNA is packaged is different and exquisitely unique to each cell type in your body. And therefore, when you take fragments of DNA that are in the bloodstream and you map them back to where the genome, it is a non-random walk as to where those fragments could have come from. Because uh, some cells have open chromatin, some are closed, so the DNA is only specifically accessible in different cells based on where they are in the body and what that cell is doing. So some of these new tools can also give you a, a signal of origin. So even though it's in your peripheral blood, it tells you where it likely came from. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. But I think uh, what I want to just describe a little bit is you know, what we've seen, for example, in, in the Pathfinder study to start there first, is that you know, they basically detected cancer, even about 1% of the participants, and of those that they could find it in, about a third were diagnosed with cancer. And, and of those cases, you know, 71% had cancer types that do not have routine screening. So they would have probably been missed. And uh, that, that was really, I think, promising, is that you're, we're picking up things that you otherwise wouldn't see. Uh, and and they, they're mentioned so far in the preliminary results that it's a 97% accurate. So that, that sounds good. But then there's also a metric for the, the positive predictive value. So if you're looking for uh, how often are you correct in matching would be a normal clinical protocol. It was 38% or 40% for some of the cancers. So that, that's lower than you'd like, but the good thing that they reported is a 1% uh, false positive rate. So the, the hope is that those are numbers that you would have not too many cases where someone's getting uh, misled or having a false positive. But Dr. Kosi, what, what do you think in terms of what you've seen for false positives, false negatives, 
some of the, the metrics of the tests and, and what do you think about when you're uh, deploying them in the clinic? I think those are uh, important aspects as we as these clinic as these assays are making their way into clinic. Um, a couple of things uh, building upon what you mentioned, uh, you know, not only is are these assays helpful uh, for diseases where you don't have screening, but even for the ones that we have screening, you know, as a GI oncologist who treats colon cancer, you know, even though colonoscopy is a very effective screening as well as a treatment modality. If you had a polyp, you were able to treat it uh, early before it becomes cancerous. It is a cumbersome procedure. You have to take time off. You have to drink that nasty prep. Uh, no matter what the <laughs> update and um, no matter how aggressive the adv advocacy is, most states have not achieved more than two-thirds of people getting screened. So a third of the patients, uh, most uh, you know, state numbers uh, are not getting screened or have had the time or for one reason or the other, haven't done the screening even though they know it's important and they know it's part of their care and it should be covered for, used to be 50 and now it's 45. And we're also seeing, unfortunately, a rise of patients uh, with young onset colon cancer. But uh, in, in terms of um, even filling the void, uh, now even for colonoscopy, you know, the stool DNA test came about, but again, simplistically yeah, speaking, yeah. it's hard to get a stool sample on demand, you know, so uh, as opposed to a blood draw on the way out, or you, as you mentioned, any clinic that can have this, it will also help to fill the void for uh, procedures or screening modalities that may or may not be as convenient. Um, yeah. I was at a conference a few weeks ago, and uh, one of the audience members uh, pointed out that, you know, for her to even schedule a mammogram for screening, it, it's still probably more cumbersome than given the option if she had a blood draw. So mm -hmm. uh, again, it doesn't necessarily replace screening where there is screening, but um, I think the future direction where it's headed is it's it's going to be a nice way to build upon as a composite with some other screening modalities. Like some of the studies are combining low-dose CT scan for lung cancer, and they're combining that with an early detection assay. So you're pairing that with the non-invasive blood draw. I think the non-invasive blood draw part is the one that uh, is, is the most appealing from a patient or caregiver standpoint, and even from an adoption standpoint. Um, the, the, you know, yeah. the signal part, the tunerated part, you know, it brings up issues regarding, um, you know, the signals uh, as to is it truly coming from that one side of origin. Uh, one thing that I wanted to point out for the audience is that even though... Uh, a, there are many types of liquid biopsies or these detection tests, but also even for the same assays that we are talking about, they've also gone through iterations or next generations or their second or third version of assays. They've, they've continued to evolve and grow and adopt and change, uh, which, is, which is great because, you know, nothing is perfect and it needs to be streamlined. And as, as we get more real-world data, it is something that they're constantly improving upon, like initially very on in the first generation of some of these assays, they were picking up a lot of blood signal from some of these blood cancers. And then they were able to now with some filtering bioinformatics, able to filter that piece out. Even in the recent studies, they talked about, you know, some cancers, for example, cervical cancer being labeled as anal cancer, but the thought was maybe mm -hmm. both are caused by the HPV virus, and maybe that's what's causing the signal to be similar. So in some cases, you were picking up another type of cancer. So not necessarily uh, a false positive for cancer, but it was a different type of cancer. Yeah. Um, the, the negative part brings up the question, like you said, you know, if I'm negative, does it mean that I'm good for now, good for a year, good for five years? I don't think we have those. I think those are all questions that we need to answer. 
Yeah, and there's a lot of good trials that have started again in the U.S. and the U.K., but also more broadly internationally, is taking thousands, in some cases tens of thousands of patients, and longitudinally following them to see what what's the you know essentially presence of some of these mutations and do they do they do they remain and continue to be detected, uh, or uh, are some of them blips or you know potentially could be a short-term uh, lysis of a lot of cells in somewhere in the body, but but then it got taken care of by the immune system, so it might be. Uh, something that you don't want to overscreen, or the example is often was uh, too much screening was done. For example, for prostate cancer, was argued uh, over the past few decades, where in some cases, if you can look at a, a really, uh, a, it might be a tumor, but it's not growing, or it might be uh, dysplasia, but it's not necessarily cancer yet, and it might never be, or it might not be for 50 years. And if you're already 80 years old, then you probably leave it be. And so I think some of those questions I think will be teased out soon. And uh, we're doing some of this even for uh, for astronauts, for example, doing cell-free DNA and tracking all of their uh, rare alleles that show up in them over time. And so, actually, one one thing I, I might um, jump into a little bit is some of the other the other uh, one test, and uh, we mentioned the Pathfinder study. There's you know some of the studies have shown, for example, the sensitivity really depends on the cancer because it depends on the access of uh, that uh, that tissue as well as the tumor to the vasculature and how likely it is. Uh, to, to just be leaving that uh, area where there might be mutations. And, you know, for example, uterine cancer and thymus cancer uh, are getting really high results. But sometimes if you look at the papers, thyroid cancer is very low sensitivity. Um, and some gastric cancers uh, can be also low sensitivity in terms of what can you observe that's there. And so I, I think that is, um, you know, a, a continued challenge of the field. Well, one thing, uh, as, you, as you were talking about this, uh, I think uh, for the audience to understand, you know, these are, as one of my colleagues from uh, Georgetown, Dr. Marshall, put it, there's a lot of tumor trash that can make its way into the bloodstream. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you're detecting different, uh, looking at it through different lenses, so to speak. But the the quote unquote shedding of um, whatever tumor contents in the blood, uh, it, it's not just uh, simplistically just leaking out into the blood. There is probably some cancer cells that are trying to actually spread or metastasize. Some may just be from regular turnover and yep. some uh, from just passive shedding. Uh, but interestingly, this shedding is very different for different cancers. Like you mentioned, that even for the same assay that's detecting many cancers, while sensitivity for some, what we call like high shedders, you know, we have known about this in our clinic that even the liquid biopsies that we use for metastatic cancer, we are probably more confident about some of the results in patients like with uh, colon cancer and some of these other liver cancers that are very high shedders. Uh, sometimes we're not as confident in interpreting results of an assay in uh, diseases like pancreas cancer and stuff where there's not much shedding. Not that there's no shedding, but relatively speaking, the shedding is different. And that's where you see a spectrum of sensitivity between across the tumor types for the same assay. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's come up is we've seen a lot of this, the, the kind of sequencing that you do also can determine what you'll pick up. And so as I think people in the audience know, there are many uh, vendors on the market, people who, uh, the companies that make different kinds of sequencers, and each one of them has its own error profile, has its own, uh, you know, essentially technical limitations, uh, chemistries, uh, also, also have different bioinformatics tools. So how do you take those fragments of DNA or, or in some cases, RNA or, or methylation on that DNA. How do you how do you align it to the genome? How do you call it? How do you interpret that data that comes from the sequencing? Depends on the method of extraction and collection and sequencing and alignment and the variant calling. All of these steps uh, can contribute to 
what you can or cannot see. Uh, and that, you know, that's already assuming that there's a shedding that you can pick up. And so I, I think, yeah, those are all really key factors that have to be uh, brought to bear when making a call of what you have or have not seen. But I think, um, you know, one thing that's really exciting to think about though, is the fact that we either many, many of these cancers, as we talked about before, either had no screening or very limited screening options. And so I, I think we, you know, can start to pick up things in stage one or stage two cancers, which I think is really the more uh, exciting and really revolutionary part of, of what these cancer tests are, are doing. I, I still say it, it doesn't cease to amaze me as to how that's even possible. You know, I've seen the evolution of these assays and, you know, four, four or five years ago when one of the companies mentioned that they could detect uh, what we call minimal residual disease, meaning leftover cancer after somebody has already removed the cancer, uh, I didn't see that something being tangible. Uh, and uh, here we are with several assays already in the clinic. Uh, even today, we, you know, that we are doing as part of uh, the regular care as well as trials. It, it just uh, is it's just so fascinating. And with these different types of uh, materials that, like you mentioned, the methylated markers, there are some assays like looking at, you know, fragment sizes, something called fragmentomics and fragmentomics, yeah, yeah. all kinds of proteins, you know. So there's uh, so many aspects to a, a cancer that can be detected in the blood of a person, including as early as, you know, stage one cancer, or even in some instances, um, in some series, they're looking at even high-risk polyps that are not even stage one cancer yet, that some of these assays are able to pick it up and you know there's very good data and large studies ongoing so it's it's just fascinating how it is possible and how quickly this has um, come into clinic as well as practice yeah and i, I think it's extraordinary because it's really the, the stage one almost sounds impossible because it, it shouldn't have, have it's cells shouldn't even be leaving it or it shouldn't be shedding at all because it's a by definition just a cancer in one spot so it but but you know uh, the cells continually churn in our body and are, are born and die uh, millions of times every minute. So it's a, it, it, it's shedding and it, the fact that we can pick it up is extraordinary. And I think, as you just alluded to, we can also begin to pick up things that are, you know, early polyps or even, you know, pre-cancers where you're screening the risk of cancer. And this is a field of clonal hematopoiesis, which, you know, we've talked about where you're carrying mutations that confer a risk in your bone marrow, for example, but you can also pick those up from a blood draw and think about, are you, are you detecting you know, the susceptibility to cancer even before it's coming, uh, for example, for leukemia, uh, is clonal metapoiesis has been well described as a way to pick up, uh, are you on your way potentially uh, towards a high-risk high, high state for getting cancer? And, you know, really tracking mutations in the blood as early as possible, even before the cancer get there or, or the, the first moment it gets there is a uh, really exciting development for the field. So, um, so the other thing I wanted to go over, uh, we've kind of we've covered a bit of the technology, how you can use, as you mentioned, also the fragmentomics, so everything about how you prepare the sample, the size of the fragment, the, the presence of mutations, the presence of any modifications like methylation. Uh, there's also been new directions that say really these multi-omic tests, where some tests on the market are looking at DNA and RNA and methylation and proteins, all within the same test. And so initially, a lot of the work by companies and, and clinicians in the field and researchers was to just look at the DNA. But I think, um, I'm curious, I, I know of some of the tests on the market that are beginning to do more multi-omic and multi-cancer early detection tests. Uh, but if you, um, 
uh, you know, it depends very much on the cancer, of course, because some cancers, for example, have a fusion protein that's exquisitely detectable because it's a protein that you never see in a normal cell, so you can pick it up quite uh, discreetly. Uh, but the uh, I'm curious if you've seen other development of these more multi multimodal and multi omic uh, testing uh, to try and pick up cancer. I think that's where the future is going because uh, you can identify cancers or there might be traits of cancers uh, that could be picked up through more than one lens in the same individual. Uh, we also see that the same cancer is different in different people. Uh, and even in the same person, you know, we call it like intratumoral as well as temporal heterogeneity that can be seen over time, that can be seen in the same person with the same cancer in different parts of the body. Uh, one example, for example, for liver cancer, uh, just like for prostate cancer, there's a, a protein called a PSA that can be detected in blood that many people are familiar with. For liver cancer, there's a protein that's called alpha fetoprotein or AFP that can be used, but you know, in a significant proportion of individuals, uh, they could have um, the liver cancer, but have no elevation of that protein. But in uh, a significant number, on the other hand, can have the elevation. So one of the assays and studies uh, very neatly uh, not only combined some methylation signals, they combined the AFP because that's also detectable in the same blood that is being sent for analysis, including uh, not only just multi-omics, you know, because they're looking at the methylated signal and the protein, they also factored in mm. the age into the scoring system, which mm. apparently helped with the screening because there's different sensitivity for males and females for the assay. And that's obviously information that for anybody getting tested, you would know the age, the sex, uh, the uh, there are probably um, racial differences as well that we're barely scratching the surface. So um, I think it makes sense to go with a multi-omics approach. I think that it all boils down to making it feasible and making it reproducible and uh, bringing the cost down too, because we're talking about screening tests in normal individuals in people who don't have cancer, not in the small minority who have cancer where you may be using it for different purposes. So at a larger level, I think the bigger question is, you know, what would be considered a, a reasonable cost for a screening assay that would be for all the ages who meet screening criteria, normal individuals? Is it something that's integrated into a yearly physical exam? Is that something that we do every so often? I think that's where some of the ongoing studies would help decipher the true benefit and what's the cadence that's needed for implementation and what would be considered a good cost-effective model. Yeah, this is a, the big question, of course, for insurance companies and, and reimbursement and, and just also resources. Of course, we can't do everything for everybody, but you know, as a simple calculation, say that uh, tests are $1,000, uh, and you do it for say 50 years, maybe from say age 35 onward or 40 onward, um, you know, then that, that's that's not that bad. It's $50,000 that might hedge you against say millions of dollars of therapy or treatment. Um, you know, not to mention, of course, the potential surgery and 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 suffering and and just uh, life delayed. So I think uh, it, you know certainly at least a back of envelope seems like a good argument for uh, some value. But but the you know the um, as you just pointed out that you know if you could be even more targeted about who would get the most value, some people might only need to be screened once every two years based on their profile and health, and otherwise uh, uh, family history, ancestry, uh, as other people might be higher risk. So they you know they could be twice a year just to really keep an eye on things. And I think the minimum residual disease is also a really exciting area because for people who are post therapy who've had cancer, 
we can really see if something's if there's a, any bit of cancer left and if it's making a comeback. Uh, and as we've seen, you know, with some patients that we've uh, looked at ourselves, uh, when some mutations disappear, uh, new ones can emerge, but you can also track them as well and, and really see the, the genetic complexity of tumors uh, as they evolve, uh, as they invariably do. One, one additional uh, point that I want to mention, and it's, the field is changing so quickly that uh, these understanding of ours and categorization also is changing uh, for these early detection assays too, while some came with the promise of multi-cancer early detection tests, uh, the, the one test for many cancers. At the same front, there are efforts uh, being also made for assays that are, again, meant for early detection or screening, but are more so for one cancer type. And broadly speaking, as I look at some of these assays, uh, while there might be differences in methodology and stuff, that would be one way of separating out the differences between these tests. Uh, one broad categorization is, is the test specific for one cancer? For example, this is only for colon cancer or lung cancer, or is this test uh, uh, suited for many cancers? And not surprisingly, if you're trying to look for many cancers, you may not have the same amount of sensitivity as, if, as opposed mm -hmm. to if you were looking at one only cancer specifically. So I guess there are pros and cons uh, to both approaches, and it's a good problem that there is more than one way or effort going on in this field. Yeah, and I've seen, some companies have really placed a bet on one type of test and one cancer and say we're going to do it deep, whereas others are, are, are clearly going broad. So I, I think the field is very exciting and we'll, we'll really learn a lot in the next two to three years as to uh, sometimes maybe certain cancers, it really does require that sort of deep dive. Others, uh, other cancers are just going to be more detectable, so probably could do a lot more uh, multi-cancer detection. And I used to say two to three years, but the pace at which things are moving is so fast. <laughs> Maybe six months. <laughs> That's right. Some of these studies with some of these uh, newer technologies, uh, you know, they're doing huge studies of, you know, 10,000, 15,000 individuals, and some of them are needing completion. So I think it's a matter of time where we see more results uh, emerging very quickly, you know. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, yeah, that was really great having you on the show. And I think this is... Um, you know, really uh, a, a breathtaking uh, pace of the field and it's really changing uh, how we can monitor disease, how we can detect disease, uh, and even uh, try and see if someone's uh, on their way towards cancer before it even shows up potentially. So there's uh, these multi-cancer early detection tests are uh, really transforming, I think, what we're seeing for cancer, much like uh, early detection transform how we detect uh, trisomy and uh, other uh, non-invasive prenatal testing, it's called. So it's really changed well, amniocentesis and, and CVS, which is now much more rarely done because you can get so much from a blood draw. So here, it's great to see in, in oncology that we can get so much from one blood draw and really, uh, I think, monitor patients, give a lot of hope for to picking things up earlier and then improving how we can see how we're doing after the therapy. So um, yeah, really pleasure to have you uh, on today. And um, thank you also uh, to for the Oncology Morning uh, Commute for hosting us. And uh, uh, everyone have a great uh, commute or subway ride or walk in the park or wherever you may be going. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash cancer early detect one. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.